If you will turn to me in your Bibles, or if you have an electronic device, thumb through and find Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. I am reading from the English Standard Version. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning and to to see everyone, to be able to be together and to worship together. Uh, just it's a true blessing. This morning we're starting our Lent series of messages, and we are preparing for Easter as we look at the process of renewal and this morning we're talking about the renewed hope now some of the class curriculum in recent weeks was also dealing with exile so this morning i want to say that uh, just as a way of background to say that it's difficult for us to think about exile because we we've never been taken out of our land we have never been removed and dealt with the fact that we're a couple or perhaps many countries away being held in a different land. That type of exile we're not ever, we've not experienced at all. However, we have experienced being out of control or having situations that we wish were different um, in some ways, this idea of exile is not just being taken away into captivity as a people. We also experience the type of exile in those seasons of life where we sep- feel separated from God, feel distant. We feel that God is not blessing us and that God has taken away a blessing, perhaps even. But it's about perspective to some degree, to a large degree. Uh, because we have choices about what we choose to base our perspective on. But to just illustrate perspective, there was a man who approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. There's a game going on, he just walked up, and he asked one of the boys that was in the dugout what the score was. And the boy responded, well, it's, 
18 to nothing, we're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I'll bet you're really discouraged. And the boy said, well, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. <laughs> now that is a glass half full perspective. Look at the bright side. We have and appropriately share some humor with that because sometimes humor helps us name the reality that we can be discouraged by what's happening on the surface, but God is addressing what happens in our hearts. And we, we notice in this passage that when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Now let's just give a little bit of a background. The prophet's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29 which has traveled across a vast distance in order to bring comfort and advice to those who find themselves under imperial rule a long way from home, emerges as a powerful testimony of resilience and survival. The letter does reflect a traumatized community who has lost everything, their loved ones, their homes, their beloved city Jerusalem, their language and culture, in addition to familiar expressions of religion, they lost their temple, their church. It had been destroyed. The underlying question addressed by Jeremiah's letters is one that may also live in many other uprooted individuals and communities, even us in our exile. How does one go on after such devastating Disaster. Jeremiah, in verses 4 to 7, speaks of the desire to pick up the pieces of their lives and to start living again. And it signals that there is a return to normalcy that is coming, such as building houses, planting vineyards, celebrating weddings, it serves as a testimony to resilience. These ordinary activities express what everybody yearned for. They wanted to get back to normal. They wanted to get back to their homes or to be able to create anew their homes in a familiar land. And they were advised by Jeremiah to actively work where they were at as immigrant communities throughout the ages know all too well if the city prospers it may also go well with them so interestingly uh, this was a different message to them than they had just heard previously they had heard from another prophet and I do say that in quotation marks because there are tons of people around today and you can just simply flash through the daily news or religious news and find everybody who's got a prophecy. And it becomes hard to decipher who is really telling the truth. And Jeremiah is saying, look, the one who is prophesying to you that, oh, it'll just be a year or two, you'll be back in Jerusalem, you'll be back in the homeland, 
And Jeremiah is saying, no, settle in for the long haul. Create your homes here. Live in peace here. Settle in and be satisfied with God's work in your lives here where you're at. A further theme that uh, Jeremiah is exploring is, and again counter to the previous prophet that was misguiding them and and, uh, deceiving them was that they were really called to live now. That the dependency on living with and for God is not dependent on your circumstances around you, but upon your frame of reference within. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. And when we do, we've got God batting on our side. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Look, you're not just there to survive it. You're there to live and thrive, even if it's far away from your homeland. In other words, the God-human relationship is further evident in people searching for God that can be understood in the resumption of religious activity. The reference to finding God in Jeremiah 29, 13 is further testimony to the act of recognizing God's presence even when we're in the exiles of our life. The problem that we have, and this is why Jeremiah has such a sharp admonition in his letter to the exiles, to address the false prophets and to advise them as he did, was that they were building on the wrong things. They were constructing on the wrong ideas. So the question Jeremiah is posing for them is this. How, in the midst of such difficult circumstances, can we live the best possible life, including daily practices, even in less than perfect circumstances, that represent God well? And so we want to look at that question and understand how God was working and calling Jeremiah to minister to these people, to help them reset, to help them see the bigger picture. Because if you don't see the bigger picture and you're only caught up with narrow focus, tunnel vision, we will probably be in despair all the time. Bible teaches that when we're saved through faith in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we become children of God. We're part of God's family because God has adopted us. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for his glorious grace and um, just really appreciated that prayer that Julie read. I thought that was just an excellent prayer that, that really reminded us of the grace of Christ, that he had purchased our freedom with the blood of Jesus and washed away our sins. The songs we sang this morning pointed to that as well. And that, um, that we're really called to this newness of life. He showered his kindness on it. We are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul wrote. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are, we are carefully joined together with him to become a holy temple for the Lord. We are a house being built, but Jesus is the cornerstone. So if you want to understand how do we rejoice in the Lord always, how do we do that in the middle of being in exile? We build on the right foundation. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that an important phrase for Menno Simons was, uh, there can be no other foundation laid than that which was laid in Jesus Christ. A verse that he cherished from the New Testament. No other foundation that can be laid. So we have all kinds of struggles and difficulties, but where is our foundation? So to help us understand the significance of the, uh, and you can start coming on up, the significance of the cornerstone, I have, I don't want to say employed because I haven't promised him any money, but I have him. I, <laughs> Ralph. Yes. Uh, Connor is going to help us understand more about the engineering perspective of why this is so important to have uh, a cornerstone and anchor that supports the structure. Is this thing? This is on. Yay. Get to play with the blocks. So I don't know how good of an engineer I am, but Randy employed me, so that's good. So first, I'll actually read a little something. I did this in like a couple of days. But this is not my work, but I really liked it. Isaiah 28, 16. There thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a storm, a stone for a foundation. I tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Historically, the cornerstone was the most important part of any building. The total weight of an edifice rested on this particular stone, which if removed would collapse the whole structure. The cornerstone was also the key to keeping the wall straight. The builders would take sidings along the edges of this part of the building. If the cornerstone was set properly, the stonemasons could be assured that all the other corners of the building would be appropriate angles as well. Thus, the cornerstone became a symbol for that which held life together. In the days of Isaiah, leaders of Israel had chosen to rest their security on a different cornerstone. They chose to put their trust in their own political savvy, though various military alliances, they thought they could hold their nation together. Ultimately, however, 
the shaky cornerstone failed in Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. Yet God declared through Isaiah that he would establish a cornerstone that would never fail, a stone that could be trusted. It had been tried and proven to be precious and sure. The New Testament writers recognized that this stone was Jesus Christ. Savior said himself, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Matthew 21 to 42. When the apostle Peter repeated Isaiah's prophecy and added, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame, 1 Peter 2, 6. When the pressures of, my, of life bear down on you, there's only one cornerstone capable of handling the weight. When your need for guidance is urgent and there's only one cornerstone you can trust to keep your life straight, that cornerstone is Jesus. Trust him with every aspect of your lives and you'll find that he never fails. He's not just a rock, he's a cornerstone. So first I'm gonna say, here's my cornerstone. So I'm gonna just start building blocks, but actually I'm building on sand. So I'm gonna have one block. Hmm. What's happening? It's not, it's not strong. Sin's coming into my life, temptations are coming. And I'm getting knocked over. My foundation isn't firm. It's not on God's love. I'm going to church on Sundays and Wednesday, but nothing's working. Let me try building on some rock. I'll try that. Let's make some good straight corners. Let's go to Bible study on Monday nights. Let's go to volleyball with friends and express what God's doing in my life on Tuesdays. Oh, there's a little nudge. Let's fix that. Oh, there's God's love at the bottom. God's word that we live by. Temptation's coming into my life. But you know what? I'm going to God. I'm talking to him, asking for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And look how tall I'm building. I can keep on building, keep using all these blocks. And as I grow more and more, I'm learning to be the man of God that I'm supposed to be, be the faith leader in the house be a faith leader with my friend group, and just building my life on God and his love. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. Here, my hope is found. Here, on holy ground. Those aren't in order, but those are the two lines, four lines that I really liked about this song, and I just felt God's presence in that song. And then, Build My Life by Pat Barrett. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust you in you alone, and I will not be shaken. Now I noticed, uh, just to you know, push you a little further here. Do it. There were, there were times that you straightened an edge here and there yeah. to align them. What, what would that be uh, a a parallel to in our, in our spiritual lives, in our walk with God. There's some confusion. Come on. There's some confusion. There's some temptations that come. But do you know who can realign? Mm-hmm. Who can realign us? We go back to the word. We go back to where our foundation is. And we align it back to perfect angles. Mm-hmm. Which enables you to do what? Grow stronger. Be more committed to Christ. Trust and, Him. 
and keep moving forward building and building <laughs> yeah thank you so much connor you're welcome thanks So this is a structural understanding of the fact that, that God wants this relationship. And uh, the relationship God wants is not just about bricks. It's also about our heart. It's personal. It's relational. Paul writes so much about the fact that in, in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. And I just encourage you to go back and study Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Where Paul is talking about the fact that this relationship with Christ changes not only who we are. But it changes our approach to the rest of our other believers. It changes our relationship with fellow Christians. It changes our relationship with the community of believers. It counts for something, which is what the people of exile missed the most. They felt like because, because they didn't have a temple, they couldn't worship. Do we feel that way? Well, it's kind of felt that way for a couple of years, hasn't it? We just can't feel like it's the same because, because we're not gathered all together in the same way that we were before. I've heard testimonies of where church buildings were destroyed, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Does that mean that the church stops being? If it does, the question that I know Jeremiah would say is, well, what kind of a people of God are you if you're dependent on the structure? So the point that, that Jeremiah is making is, look, be the community of faith together. And it's not only personal, it's not only relational, community-centered, it's eternal. It has an eternal impact, not just for those that are gathered, but for those that are reached by those that gather. And so there is an eternal impact for those people of God. Because we're reunited in Christ, we receive this inheritance from God, which he chose us in, for us in advance. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. Some people get tired of, of the quote of this thing uh, uh, from Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you. It's one, probably one of the most common graduation verses ever. And I will say, I probably went through my own phase of going, you know, please come up with something new. And there are some other ones too. But I've changed on that. Because what God is saying to us through Jeremiah is, it may not be your plan, but it's a plan that I will keep the promises that I've made. I will not back away from them. Notice what Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 15. 
Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts, now listen to this line, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. That's what he's, Jeremiah is talking about in, in God's plan. It's a redemptive plan for you to be able to have hope and encouragement and strength no matter what your circumstance is. That is far more powerful than living according to the joy of the moment only. Paul goes on to say, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for those who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Now that's a perspective changer. No matter who you're studying, no matter who you're reading, no matter who you're listening to or, or whatever you're getting your information from, never hold it higher than the word of God and God directly himself. God as the one who is the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. Listen to Ephesians again in chapter 2, where Paul said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on this foundation. That building of the foundation, which is Christ himself as the cornerstone, means that it is a spiritual foundation and not a human foundation. And so a few things that we can do to remember what really anchors us and what helps us keep our balance, to remember what God's purpose and what the big picture really is. Remember God's promises that he kept. I've long known this poem or heard of this poem, and I, I love this poem by Annie Johnson Flint. God hath not promised skies always blue, flower strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised that we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift easy travel needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, 
never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way. Grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. That's what God has promised. The strength to carry us through. The strength to start over. That's hope renewed. Whether we're in exile for a while longer, whether we're in pain for a while longer, the word today is, I don't care what you're facing, God speaks hope and encouragement through the power of his Holy Spirit over you. In Romans 8.31, Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so one of the things, the other things we can do is to recount how God has been personally faithful to us over the years, the ways that he has carried us in the past. And in doing so, we'll be reminded that God keeps his promises because we will remember all the ways that he's been with us and carried us through the times of exile in the past. When you realize God is for you, it changes the way you look at your life. It changes that perspective. 18 to nothing is nothing to the one who has hope in God because we haven't even batted yet. And there are still seven innings to go unless there's a 10-run rule or a 15-run rule. I think they used to have all kinds of those rules. But the point is that it is a matter of perspective that we're to claim. When I realize that God is for me, I don't have to hide from God. When I realize God is for me, I don't have to live for God's approval, but I, I, don't, have, I don't live for God's approval, but I live from God's approval. I love that phrase from a pastor to say, I'm not earning my salvation. I'm living joyful, victorious life because of what Christ has done for me. And when we realize that God is for us, we don't have to fear anymore what happens because we know and trust that God is at work and we are in God's hands. That taking away of fear is powerful. And so we can repent for placing our trust in the earthly things. In Colossians 3, it says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If we set it on earthly things, you'll always be depressed. You will never have hope. And you'll be in exile no matter if you're in Jerusalem or in Babylon. It doesn't matter where you are. You'll be in exile. Because you will be depressed and lonely and struggling. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So therefore, Paul said, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now rid yourself of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self. There was none of this that they couldn't do right there in Babylon. And we're called also then to live as if the promise and hope are fulfilled. Let me just repeat that. Can we live as if it's already been fulfilled? We can, because we're not dependent on earthly things. If we can manifest God in our lives in difficulty or exile, places in life we don't want to be, we will ever manifest God. Will we ever manifest God? If we can't, in those difficult places, will we ever manifest God in the promised land? And that's a real question to ponder. If I can't be happy when it's not going well, am I going to be content in God when it is? Or will it still not be enough? And that's the problem with living in a prosperous land. That's the problem with many believers in in a land of plenty. And that's exactly why they were sent into exile, was because they were griping and complaining even when God had given them the promised land. And God said, well, if you aren't going to appreciate it when you're blessed and given the promised land, let's try this for a while and see if that's any better for you, which it obviously wasn't. We're called to live as if the promise and hope in Christ are already fulfilled because they are, if we embrace it. So sometimes God has a different plan than what we were thinking. And I find it amusing how often people try to continually conform God's plan around what I want. And so we are really called to be a people willing to transform the things of God and the things of this earth. We're called to transform the presence of God and speak it into our world and into our culture. And that really ultimately is why we do communion. We do communion to remember that it is Christ, our cornerstone, that, and what he accomplished for us that enables us to claim victory. So let's listen to the promise that God makes to his people. That if they would be faithful to trust him with his plan for their lives, and we call on him and we pray to him, he will listen to us. Scripture says... You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So God sees everything and is aware of everything you go through. God cares about everything. And we're called to stop worrying about our worst days because we know that we can continue to have hope. And call out to Christ. 
Talk with him about what's going on. And remember God's promises. Remember God's great, great promises. So we can choose to waste our time worrying. We can become paralyzed by wondering. We can become discouraged and begin to wander away from the path God set before. But we are called then to come back to the reality of Christ. As I close, I'll return back to the first chapter of Ephesians where Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I invite you to confirm that desire to be faithful in that passage and to live that passage as we sing this song of response. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We don't trust anything but holy trust in Jesus' name. May that be our confession, our profession, and our life before us. Amen.